keep your Bible out this morning. We're going to work through that passage as we uh, begin our Christmas sermon series, God with us. I love, I love the Christmas season. Um, I'm sure you're a lot like me. You have certain family traditions, and a lot of ours revolve around uh, movies. And movies I watch as a kid and movies I'm watching with my kids to sort of instill those traditions and habits that we come to every year. And uh, one of those movies we like to watch um, is A Christmas Carol. And I, I like the most recent Disney adaptation. That's pretty good. But there are lots of them out there, and I'm sure you've seen them uh, before, maybe on TV when Christmas you were recovering from one of those great meals that seemed to accompany holidays, and it was on the TV, and you were in and out of consciousness watching it. I don't know. But it's Charles Dickens' great book from um, the 19th century. And uh, I don't know if you know the story, but it begins, the book begins with a simple phrase, Marley was dead. You know, Jacob Marley was Ebenezer Scrooge's um, business partner, and he died, and eventually his ghost comes and encounters Ebenezer, and then the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future, and all the rest. It's a great one. You should watch it. But I, I was thinking about that this week because of this phrase that was in my mind, dead as a doornail. Dead as a doornail. Have you ever said that phrase before? Yeah. So I go online. I'm trying to figure out, what does that mean, dead as a doornail? And you know, it's in Charles Dickens' book, A Christmas Carol. It begins, the first line of the book is, Marley was dead to begin with. And then a few sentences later, it says, um, he was dead as a doornail. And then this is what Dickens wrote. I don't mean to say that I know of my knowledge what there is particularly dead about a doornail. I might have been inclined myself to regard a coffin nail as the deadest piece of ironmongery in the trade. Maybe you can relate to that. What makes a doornail dead? I'd, I'd said the phrase a thousand times, I'm sure, but this week I actually looked up what is a doornail and what does it mean that it's dead? And so I just want to kind of bring some clarity to this cliche that you and I say, okay? A doornail is that big, ornate nail that was driven into a door. Okay, and I know, Brad, what are you doing? But think about it. It's a doornail. You've seen those ornate Victorian or even medieval doors, and they have these big studded nails all the way across the front. Those doors had to be heavy, and they had to hold all these boards together, and so they used big, heavy nails, and they drove them all the way in. And a doornail was only said to be dead when the flange or the head of the nail was driven completely into the wood so that it was snug. And there was no way anyone could get something behind it to pry it off. It was dead when it was driven all the way in. It was dead as a doornail. Now, you'll never say that phrase without thinking about those doornails. You, you know, I've ruined the fun of the cliche. But I think it's interesting how you and I get into the habit of saying things, cliches and quips, without fully understanding what they mean. Dead as a doornail. It's just something you say when something's really dead. Not mostly dead, but all the way dead. And I think Christians are guilty of making that mistake, of saying things or cliches or quips without fully comprehending the meaning of the phrase. Just take the one we're thinking about the next four weeks. God with us. And everybody who's been around church at Christmas season has sung the songs we sang today about Emmanuel, God with us. 
But when was the last time you really thought about what it meant that Jesus was God with us? I've been thinking about it a lot. I think it actually is the heart of our faith. If you lose Jesus as Emmanuel, you lose Christianity. And so over the next four weeks, I want to dig into this phrase and sort of do what I did to that dead as a doornail thing with the phrase God with us. Just kind of blow it apart, remove all the fun from it, and see it in all its different dimensions. I got four of them. I think we're actually making four claims when we say that Jesus is God with us. And today we're going to look at the first one, and it's a metaphysical claim. When we say that Jesus is God with us, we are saying something about Jesus' nature. That in Jesus, the God who created our world is present with us. So at some point, between the initiation of the engagement between Joseph and Mary and before their wedding day, Mary became pregnant, and Joseph is trying to figure out what to do. The Bible tells us that he had decided to divorce her, but he was going to do it quietly, not to embarrass her or to cause any disgrace to come to her family, and an angel came. Before he could go through with it, an angel came, changing his tune, telling him some amazing things telling him that Jesus was unlike any baby who'd ever been born, that he was Emmanuel. So this morning, as we think about what it means for Jesus to be God in human flesh, I want to give you four reasons, four biblical reasons why you can believe this and trust this. And the first is the angelic explanation of his birth. In verse 20, the angel tells Joseph, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who's been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, of course, thinks like you and I would think. That Thank God we got this temporary arrangement where I can assess the character of this woman. She's proved herself to be unfaithful. I'm going to be done with her. Right? He, he assumes that Mary's been unfaithful and the baby she's carrying is another man's. But the angel says, not, not so fast, Joseph. The baby is of the Holy Spirit. I love that gentle phrase. The baby is of the Holy Spirit. I mean, it completely shrouds any attempt at precision of understanding how this baby came to be. It's of the Holy Spirit. But Joseph understood it perfectly. This baby's coming from God. God is involved. This is not the result of some kind of affair or unfaithfulness. This baby's from God. I like the way Gabriel explained it to Mary over in Luke chapter 1. He came to her and said, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. And behold, you'll conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he'll reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And of course, Mary's thinking what you're thinking. How's this going to be? Since I'm a virgin, I've never known a man. The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible for God. 
And Mary said, Behold, the bondslave of the Lord, may it be done, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Well, I know you and me, we're, we wish we could wrap our minds perfectly around these infancy narratives of Jesus. How is it possible for a young girl who's never known a man to become pregnant? Well, the baby's of the Holy Spirit. The Most High will overshadow you. God hides it away. I like the way John MacArthur says it. He says, The virginal conception of Jesus by Mary is as unexplainable and mysterious to human understanding as God's creation of everything out of nothing. How did that happen? How did, in the flash of an eye, the James Webb Space Telescope produces incredible images? Have you seen those? Oh, man, I love looking at them. I love looking at the galaxies far off and far distant. But did you know there was a point in time where all those distant galaxies and stars did not exist? And then the moment later, they did. How did that happen? Well, God just said it, and it was so. It's as uncomprehensible, incomprehensible as the doctrine of the Trinity. How do you understand to the great one in three? How do we understand God, one God, existing for all eternity in three persons without any sort of division, perfectly bound in love? How can we wrap our finite minds around that? It's the same with the birth of Jesus. How do we understand the Most High will overshadow you and the baby in your womb will be of the Holy Spirit? That's a mystery, incomprehensible to human understanding. And because of that, I think that the, the virgin birth is one of those doctrines that is most under attack. I mean, both ancient and modern skeptics concocted all kind of stories to explain it away. I mean, within one generation of Jesus' resurrection, his opponents began circulating the tale that Jesus was the child of an affair between Mary and a Roman centurion named Pantera. I mean, one generation. And so it shouldn't surprise you that when you turn on the History Channel... And they're explaining to you the origins of Christmas, and it's a pagan holiday co-opted by the Romans to force people to adopt Christianity. And Jesus, of course, wasn't born of a virgin. They're trying to undermine one of the most basic tenets of your faith, something that God didn't waste any time getting to. But as soon as you open up the Gospel of Matthew and your daily Bible reading on January 1st, you're going to read about it. It's bizarre. It's incomprehensible and mysterious, but you can trust that Jesus is God in human flesh because of the way the angel explained his birth. Maybe there's another reason in this text that I want to show you. It's the prophetic expectation. Matthew tells us that the birth of Jesus happened to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Now that is a quotation from Isaiah 7.14. And the initial context of Isaiah's prophecy is really important, really interesting. Um, the king of Judah, Ahaz, was worried because an unholy alliance between the king of Syria and the king of Israel had taken shape and they were threatening to conquer Jerusalem. And so Ahaz is trying to figure out what he's going to do. And God sends Isaiah the prophet and, and tells Ahaz, Hey, listen, just ask of me, and I'll give you a sign. I'll tell you what's going to happen. I'll, I'll give you proof that I'm trustworthy. 
And in Isaiah 7.10, Ahaz says, No way, I wouldn't dare tempt God by asking for a sign. And God sees right through his facade of piety and says, Hey, listen, I'm going to give you a sign anyway. And he says, Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. And he tells him that before this kid is old enough to discern the difference between right and wrong, that the kingdoms of Syria and Israel will have been dealt with. So the initial prophecy was a proof to Ahaz that God could be trusted. It was a countdown. That as he watched this little baby grow up, he could be sure that before this child got old enough to discern the difference between right and wrong, God would act to judge his enemies. And so in chapter 8 of Isaiah, the baby shows up. Isaiah's wife has a child. He calls, her, he calls the child Mayor Shalal Hashbaz. And there's Hebrew to that, but I faked my way through Hebrew. Okay, so I'm not going to give it to you. I don't remember it. But the reality of it is, is there you have it. The virgin will conceive and bear a child and call his name Emmanuel. And here this child is, Isaiah's own son. But a strange thing happens. You turn over to Isaiah chapter 9. And it seems that this child is something other than a prophet's kid. He was a preacher's kid. I'm a preacher's kid. Hey, we're nothing special. Nothing special about Mayor Shalal Hashbaz. Just has an awesome name. But then you get to chapter 9 of Isaiah, and there's this other kid talked about. Verse 6 of Isaiah 9, A child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, and there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Now, I know every baby's special. Every baby is a result of a miraculous act of God. We're not talking just mere biological functions. God acts for every child. And I'm not saying Mayor Shalal Hashbaz is not important, because I think he served a function for Ahaz. But when we read Isaiah 9, 6 to 8, doesn't your heart sort of swell up in understanding that this isn't just any old kid? You heard the words of Gabriel in Luke chapter 2, and you recognize the echo. Who's going to sit on the throne of his father David and rule over Jacob to all generations? The baby about Isaiah, the baby he talked about in Isaiah chapter 9. These are divine titles. By the way, one commentator says it. He says, Isaiah chapter 9 expressed the hope that God would presence himself in actual human life through a human birth. It'd be blasphemy to call Isaiah's kid everlasting God, eternal father, prince of peace. That title only belongs to Jesus. And so this expectation spoken by Isaiah and echoed through the prophets gained steam. That someday God himself is going to arrive to conquer his enemies and to bring justice on the earth and to establish a kingdom that never ends. And according to the angel and according to Matthew and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in Jesus that's exactly what happened. God has arrived and he has taken on flesh to establish a kingdom that knows no end. So when we say Jesus is God with us, that's what we mean. He's here to do what he said he was going to do. Jesus is God in the flesh, who alone is worthy of worship. There's another reason 
that you can trust that, not just the prophetic expectation. But I want you to think about the public demonstration of Jesus' life. Now, the baby grows up. He used to be 12 years old. Mary and Joseph take him to the temple for a festival, and they head home, and they can't find him. So you go on a mad dash trying to find their missing kid, and they end up in the temple where, of all places, they find Jesus sitting at the rabbi's feet. They say, son, you've scared us so bad. What are you doing? And he said, did you not know that I'd be about my father's business? And then when he was 30 years old and appears in the wilderness preaching about the coming of God's kingdom and the desire to repent and believe and to enter in into discipleship and follow him, everything he did and everywhere he went, he proved who he was. I mean, think about the authority he wielded. I mean, he shows up in the synagogue, and the people say, wow, what is this? A teaching with authority, for he teaches us, not as the scribes do, but with authority. And he could cast out demons just with the word, be silent and come out of him. I mean, he healed the sick everywhere he went. He raised the dead. He controlled the wind and the waves. He multiplied loaves and fishes to feed crowds. He even exercised authority to forgive sins. We're not talking about a wonder kid. We're not talking about a, pro, a, a prodigy. We're talking about authority unlike any other human being, the authority of God alone. He publicly demonstrated in his life that he is God in human flesh. Not only that, he made personal claims that asserted his divine identity. I love John chapter 10. That's a good shepherd passage where Jesus says that the sheep hear his voice and they follow him. But he ends up in the temple again, and the religious leaders are challenging him, saying, if you're the Christ, why don't you just tell us plainly? And after Jesus reminded them that he had told them, and that even if he hadn't, his works testified to who he is, that's all the authority he wielded, he finally has the audacity to say in John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. And immediately, the religious men bend over and pick up rocks and prepare to stone him. He said, they said, who do you think you are making yourself out to be God? He made personal claims to his divine identity. I love John chapter 14. As he's preparing his disciples for his ascension, he's uh, teaching them about the Holy Spirit, talking to them about the way to heaven. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And one of the smart guys, Philip, says, well, Lord, just show us the Father, and that's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you've not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I'm in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I don't speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I'm in the Father, and the Father is in, in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. I mean, Jesus taught his disciples that his words were the words of God. So to hear Jesus speak was to hear God speak. And he said to see his works was to see God at work. That he was completely indistinguishable in his works and words from God himself. I mean, how else do you explain it but to say that Jesus is God in human flesh. I mean, I know lots of people today like to think of Jesus as 
a great teacher of religious truths. And they want to find commonality between Christianity and other world religions and saying, hey, listen, Jesus was the greatest ethical mind to ever live. He showed us a perfect example of love for your neighbor. And I love Jesus' teaching, but I just can't bring myself to believe in the virgin birth. Or, I don't know, if there is a God, I'm not convinced that Jesus is him. I just think he's a good teacher. And so I'll take the teachings of Jesus, and I'll leave the God thing to the side. You heard people say that? And maybe today you're there. Maybe you believe that. Maybe that's an accurate description of your own belief. Jesus is a great teacher, not God. Okay, but I love what C.S. Lewis said. He said that a man who made the claims that Jesus made, I and the Father are one, to see me is to see the Father. The words I speak aren't my words. They're the Father who's in me. The works I do, they're the Father's works. A man who made those kind of claims but wasn't God would either be a liar, and so all the rest of his teaching would be called into question, or he'd be a lunatic on the order of a man who thinks he's a poached egg. I mean, just imagine how you would react if someone came in here today saying the things Jesus said, and you know full well he's not God. You'd think he was crazy. You'd be compassionate towards him. You'd want to try to find him help. You would call authorities, whether the law or the hospital, and you'd try to get this man the care he needs. You wouldn't bow down before him and worship at his feet. And yet that's what people did everywhere Jesus went. Proskuneo, it's the Greek word. They fell down before him and worshiped. Jesus publicly demonstrated in his life by the authority he wielded, by the things he said, that he is God in human flesh. But if that's not enough for you, think about the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus which are recorded for us in Scripture. This is not point four. I want to applaud you, though, for trying to fill in that blank. We're going to get to it. This is still point three, the public demonstration. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that after Jesus was resurrected, he made himself known. He manifested himself to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve, And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. When Paul was writing, he said, most of them are still alive, but some of them have died. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born. So get this, after Jesus was crucified and buried, and on the third day he rose again, he didn't just hide away in a corner, but he made himself publicly known to a lot of people. I mean, over 500, conservatively speaking, um, maybe as many as 720 people, 750 people. Every one of them saw the risen Christ. And when they saw him, they recognized him as the teacher they'd followed. But they also recognized that he was somehow different. And I like the story where the twelve were huddled in that upper room behind locked doors. And in John 20 it says, Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands and reach here your hand and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving, but be believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Now for me, that's a clincher. I mean, Thomas walked with Jesus for three years, knew him inside and out, had experienced the heartbreak of his crucifixion and the fear that followed. And yet in one moment, 
He didn't say, wow, Jesus, how'd you pull that one off? He praised my Lord and my God. And Thomas would go on to share the gospel to the ends of the earth. Church tradition tells us in India and die a martyr. I mean, these disciples saw Jesus resurrected and they knew he wasn't just a teacher revived. He was God. And because of that, everywhere they went, they proclaimed Jesus as God. That's the fourth point, the apostolic proclamation. I mean, these disciples who had seen Jesus resurrected made that the cornerstone of the things they preached. I mean, you, you look in any of the sermons recorded for us in Acts, Peter on the day of Pentecost, this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made him both Lord and Christ. And over time, they're able to reflect on it, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they're able to gain insight into the messianic expectation of the Old Testament to see the lines converge, that God himself was going to come and a, and a Davidic king was going to arrive, and they both happen simultaneously in the person of Jesus. And I love the way John opens his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14, he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word, who was with God from eternity and was God, took on flesh and lived among us, and we saw his glory. John knew Jesus wasn't just a good teacher. He was God in the flesh and worthy of worship. The apostles knew that God had spoken in many times and in many ways, their fathers to the prophets, but in the last days he'd spoken to them through his Son who is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. They knew, like Paul said in Colossians 1, that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And everywhere they went, the apostles were jealous for people to see Jesus for that. Jesus isn't some good teacher, but that he is God and he's worthy of our whole lives, everything we've got. And so everywhere they went, they traveled proclaiming, Jesus as the Son of God in human flesh and calling people to recognize Him as it. And after all, they knew probably better than anybody else in the history of the world that all the many thousands of years of religion had been altered by the coming of Christ. And so to enter back into the temple would be blasphemy because Christ has offered a once-for-all sacrifice and there's no need anyway because we're not approaching a far-off deity, one who has to be approached with a sacrifice of blood, but a God who is with us, and we're going to see it next week, is acquainted with us in our weakness because he became like us in every respect, being even tempted as we are, yet without sin. And more than that, more than just preaching the need to repent and recognize Jesus as God, the disciples also believed that Jesus brought benefits that were only secured because of who he was. One of my favorite passages in the whole Bible is Galatians 4, 4 and 5. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. See, all Jesus is more than a wise teacher. Jesus is more than a radical example of love. He is none other than God himself 
in human flesh. God the Son, who had been with God for all eternity, left His place in glory to be born of Mary so that by His perfect life of righteousness, He could fulfill the law of God on our behalf. And then in His sacrificial death, suffer the penalty that our sins deserved. I mean, all the blessings and benefits, Paul says, comes to us because in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Everything you possess in Christ is yours because of this reality. He is God with us. So when we say Jesus is God with us, we don't simply mean that Jesus taught us true things about God. We don't mean that Jesus is a perfect example of godliness or even that he's the human reflection of what God is like. Now, we make a far more radical claim than that. We're saying that there is no other God than he who makes himself known in Jesus. Jesus is God in human flesh, and he alone is worthy of our worship. So maybe this Christmas season, as you and your family gather around the TV to watch your favorite movies, and as you open up the pages of Scripture to reflect on the Christmas stories, maybe you need to remember what the angel said. This child is of the Holy Spirit. Remember what the apostles proclaimed. That Jesus fulfills all the prophetic expectation. You need to think about all the details of his life and allow them to pile up in your mind so that when you hear the words of the gospel, you believe. I mean, perhaps this is the year when Christmas loses all its cliche and commercial qualities for you. And you rediscover the heart of it all. That Jesus is God with us. Maybe today is a day when God brought you here so you would be challenged with this truth. That you would have to come to grips with who Jesus claims he is. And this morning you need to commit yourself to following him. He is God, whether you like it or not, whether you believe it or not, he is. And when God sent him from heaven to earth to be born of Mary and to live a sinless life, perfectly fulfilling God's law, and to die on the cross in the place of all who would ever trust in him, and when he raised him up from the grave, his work wasn't done. God brought him up to heaven where he sits at God's right hand, ruling and reigning over all things until the day when he returns to put his enemies under his feet. In that day, Paul says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so the invitation that he makes to us is we recognize him now for who he is or we recognize him then. I want you to know him now. I want you to know the hope that comes from knowing Jesus as our Emmanuel, our God with us, who entered into the brokenness of human life to redeem us from it. Don't allow your pride to get in the way of surrendering your life to Christ. Maybe this is the Christmas season when it all comes together in your mind and you're able to celebrate with us as we sing of our Emmanuel. Will you pray with me?